Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm joined by Crisis Group's new president and chief executive officer, Comfort Eero, who took over the helm of Crisis Group in the last week of December. I think the whole organization is thrilled that she's heading Crisis Group at a hugely important time. Comfort, welcome back on in your new capacity as president. Thank you very much, Richard, for welcoming me back onto the podcast and also thrilled to be Crisis Group's new president and CEO and look forward to working with you and all our listeners on the podcast as well. Thank you. We're also very happy to welcome on Austis Olofstochter, who's Crisis Group's online communication manager. And Austis actually used to be a radio host, so we're in very good hands. Austis is joining this week as guest host. Austis, welcome on. Thanks very much for joining. Thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. So what we're going to do this week is talk about our annual 10 conflicts to watch list, which we publish with Foreign Policy magazine each year. You can find the link in the show notes. It's basically an overview of the conflicts and the trends that we're most worried about for 2022. I'm not going to host. I'm going to hand over to Alstis and she'll moderate the discussion with Comfort and with me about this year's list. So Alstis, over to you. Thank you, Richard. It is exciting to have the opportunity to talk about the 10 conflicts to watch list with the two of you. Uh, this really is a flagship publication and we see that over a thousand people come to it every single day. So it definitely is something that resonates with people. I think it would be good before we start just to take a look at this year's list so that uh, our listeners are aware. Uh, on the list this year, there is Ukraine, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, the United States and China, and then Iran versus the United States and Israel, Yemen, Israel-Palestine, Haiti, Myanmar, and finally, Islamist militancy in Africa. And we will be taking a closer look at some of these uh, later in the discussion. But first, Comfort, I wanted to ask you, Crisis Group covers 55 conflicts around the world. I can only imagine that it must be a nightmare to try to get this list of 10 conflicts to watch in the year ahead down to 10. Could you tell us a bit about the process and, and how you sort of think about this product? Thank you very much, Astis. And you know, I recall what my predecessor, Rob, um, said last this time last year, 
that it, you know, there's a sense in which it feels like a, you know, the Academy Awards of the worst conflicts of the world. It's a depressing state of affairs um, that we have to you know, go through a very lengthy conversation to decide which are the worst conflicts to put on the, on the list. Um, but in a nutshell, um, as this, one of the reasons why we, we do these lists is it's a, it's a way of reminding our audience, um, particularly government policymakers, donors and mediators about you know some of the conflicts that we need to pay attention to either because they're worsening um, or because we see an opportunity to help change um, the dynamics maybe we see a, a glimmer of hope um, maybe we see that a certain particular trajectory in the conflict lends itself um, is right for some kind of mediation as well and oftentimes and this is very much the essence of crisis group we focus on those conflicts that are not in the headline so it isn't, again, it's an attempt to just put a spotlight. Um, it's an attempt to get early warning, crucially early action. Um, it's also uh, a list that um, jugs the minds of key actors to deploy more resources or energy um, against a, a particular um, conflict as well. Okay, thank you, Comfort. What are some of the the bigger picture trends when you were looking at the list, both, you know, thinking about the past year, but also now the year ahead? There are at least, you know, overall, at least four to five big trends that sort of tie the thread together and explain why we chose um, the the conflicts. So right at the top, and it will not surprise our, our readership, our listenership, um, that we have focused on the human cost of conflict, the, the humanitarian toll um, of a lot of these conflicts that we're dealing with. And we, we see it every day um, in the work that we do. Tied to that, and one that has is, that is sharpened in, in recent times is major power competition, particular tensions between the great powers, you know, the US on one hand with China, with China or US-Russia. And a third one that is sort of related to that is concern about the declining um, U.S. influence globally in areas where it was previously influential in the post-Second um, World War era. And I think two that I will tie together, um, although we treat them separately within crisis group, is COVID and climate change. What I would say, these are mega trends that overlay all these conflicts. They're, they're global in terms of the impact that they have. I'm quite happy to go into each of them this, but this is sort of a big picture of the things that tie and bind all the 10 conflicts together. Yes, I think we should actually look at each one of those. But I want to seize on something that you said, because you mentioned uh, COVID and climate change as sort of a big mega trend. Many feared at the beginning of the pandemic that COVID could actually exacerbate wars, that um uh, warring um, factions might take uh, advantage of, you know, policymakers being busy with 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 the response to the pandemic, and also also thought that it could be an opportunity, actually, for resolution. Um, when we look at the effects that COVID has had, um, has it been less than we thought, or are the effects of COVID maybe yet to come for conflicts? Thanks, Francis. I think one thing that I'd like to emphasize, and, and we've certainly emphasized it in all the work that, we, that we've done, is that you know, COVID has had an immense um, impact um, on lives. I mean, it's been an immense strategy for people, for families, for, for various countries. It's disrupted livelihood across the world. 
Um, but the impact that it's had on the trajectory of, of conflict has been mixed. Certainly, no war in faction in our, in our assessment, no war in faction has stopped fighting because of COVID. Peace processes um, such as Libya, for example, have, have continued in spite of COVID. There is an argument that, for example, the peace process um, in South Sudan may have slowed down a little bit as a result, but the bag is mixed on on the worst crises and whether COVID has had an, has an impact. I would say, however, um, that what has worsened is the humanitarian situation around these conflicts. Um, the relationship with the humanitarian makes the picture bleak, and it's not COVID on itself, but more so the, the humanitarian consequences or fallout from COVID that has made it more difficult. I would also say that, you know, one of the things that we looked at this week was Martin Griffiths, the chief of OCHA, UN OCHA's own bleak picture. And he spots light a very grim statistics when he says only 4% of the 7 billion vaccines administered have reached countries with a humanitarian response plan. So that's a worrying sort of statistics that only in the whole effort to get the vaccine rollout, the countries that are suffering um, from getting vaccine distributed quickly are those that are that are facing or those that are conflict affected um, countries. And I think that's a pause for concern. And isn't this what you're talking about now, how COVID can make a bleak situation even worse? Would we say the same when we look at the effects of climate change? on conflict? There was a lot that went wrong in 2021 and you know, a lot to, to worry about. But I think one of the things that was particularly worrying was was just the ever starker evidence of, of the climate crisis. I mean, 2021 was a year of storms and floods. It was a year of heat waves with you know, record-breaking temperatures in parts of the world. It was a year of fires and, and, and droughts. Um, now, you know, exactly as you say, the link between climate change and conflict is quite complicated. There are estimates, and I think the, the modelling is pretty robust, that for every half degree of temperature rise, the risk of conflict increases by 10 to 20%. If anything, those models may even underestimate the, the danger, because you imagine that happening across the world at the same time, the risk of instability in one country uh, spilling over into its neighbours. The other thing I think that it's worth noting is that of the countries that are on the sharp end that, li- that are likely to feel and are already feeling the impact of climate change uh, most harshly already, more than half of them are affected by conflict. So it's the most fragile areas that are going to suffer the, 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 the brunt of climate change in the years ahead. Now, exactly how uh, rising temperatures will play into conflict risks is complicated. Um, much of it will be related to people moving from one part of one part of the a country or one part of the world to another uh, because the place where they're living is no longer habitable. Because changing rainfall means that they can't grow the crops they were before, or they're looking for new areas to graze their cattle or, or sheep. So a lot of it is related to population movement and how countries manage population movement really depends on the capability of the governments themselves, whether they have sort of systems they can put in place to. Manage manage those risks. But what's clear is that you know, we are seeing already in parts of the world, uh, not only climate change and uh, more extreme weather exacerbating dire humanitarian situations, but we're seeing direct links between people moving due to climate change and instability. Now, the good news is that forecasting is getting better. And I think it is, it is easier now to predict how changing weather patterns, even over the next five to 10 years, 
are going to potentially uh, cause population movement. So it is getting easier to forecast that. But the challenge is whether governments themselves are going to be able to prepare and, uh, and manage that uh, population movement and any resultant tensions. Comfort, it really struck me what you, when you were talking about the trends, you mentioned the humanitarian tensions. And in the introduction to uh, 10 conflicts to watch for 2022, you say that uh, Yemen's conflict kills more people due to starvation and preventable disease than violence. Could you talk a little bit more about the terrible human toll and maybe some of the countries that are on the list this year um, where we are especially worried about the humanitarian situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we wanted to do in this particular year's um, 10 conflicts was to watch, was to put a spotlight on what conflicts are doing to people. Um, so the, the numbers of people dying, the conflict trends, um, we see this as all moving in the wrong direction. I mean, Yemen, you know, we include Afghanistan, Ethiopia, um, for example, are the, are the countries that, that we spot, spotlight as well. So more people needing aid than um, previous decades, more people displaced than since um, the end of the Second um, World War, um, many millions at risk of famine um, due, to, due to conflict and due to the decisions, often deliberate, taken by, by leaders um, acting with impunity. Let me quickly put a spotlight on, on, on one of them because we've just come out with a report um, t- um, this week on Yemen. The war itself has faded from the headlines that we saw in 2020-2021. Um, but the country is trapped um, in this overlapping emergency that continues to defy mediation. And things are set to worsen, as we, as we say in our, in our new report. Um, you know, Yemen is the site of what the UN says is one of the world's largest humanitarian crises. And by the end of 2021, the war had cost around you know, 377,000 Yemeni lives. Um, according to to a UN figure, um, of this number, most were killed not by frontline fighting, um, shelling or airstrikes, but by hunger, preventable disease, the majority of them young children and women. Now, the, the other country um, that I think is a, that shows just the extent of the humanitarian toll, the extent of the human suffering, is Myanmar. As you'll recall, as this the 1st of February um, coup, you know, has intensified conflict in that country. We see a situation where the, the humanitarian situation is worsening. You know, education has collapsed, jobs have been lost, and instability prevails right across the country. The health system has come under strain from, from COVID, partly also as a result of, you know, what we're seeing um, with this decline of the situation in, in the country. And then, you know, the one that we've really focused on is Afghanistan, where, you know, we have a humanitarian catastrophe looming. The vicious fighting may be um, less today, but we have a devastating humanitarian situation on our hand, coupled with food insecurity, um, famine. Um, the number of people, this, for example, who die, that are dying over this winter, could far outstrip, you know, all the numbers of deaths over fighting over the last decade or so. Ocha, for example, says that more than 24 million people um, require life-saving assistance to prevent you know, further humanitarian catastrophe. Now, we can put blame, and quite rightly we should, um, on the Taliban, and we can discuss that um, further, including you know, the Taliban government's refusal to acknowledge the scale of that humanitarian disaster. 
But I think we also have to put this squarely at the door of Western powers and how they've managed the fallout from their withdrawal. It would be interesting for those of us who are not um, looking at these policies, you know, every day. How, why do you say that Western powers have some responsibility? What decisions have they made that have exacerbated the situation in Afghanistan? It's a great question, Alice. You know, and listeners of the podcast will be sort of familiar with some of the arguments. But in essence, after the Taliban took over, Western powers uh, shut off all aid. Now, again, as Comfort said, the Taliban shoulder much of the responsibility for this. They've done very little uh, to to endear themselves to donors. They've appointed a government that's entirely Taliban. I mean, they've it's it's mostly Pashtun, the the the, the Taliban's ethnic base. They've closed girls' schools for, for for the most part. You know, they've uh, lots of reports of them cracking down on on rivals and former members of the security forces. So the Taliban have done very little by way of compromise. But there's no doubt, as Comfort says, that the the dire humanitarian situation situation in Afghanistan right now owes itself in large part to decisions that are being taken in Western capitals and in Washington in particular. And these decisions relate to, first of all, freezing the Afghanistan central bank's assets. So there's about 9.5 billion, which the US is holding on to. Uh, that was the country's money under the former government. Uh, they've stopped all development aid. So humanitarian aid is going through, although that's still short of what the UN has, has requested. But they've stopped all development aid to a country which relied on development aid for 75% or so of its national budget. And they've left the sanctions in place on the Taliban. So in essence, in Afghanistan, there's a liquidity crisis. Uh, There's no cash in the central bank. People don't have money to buy food. Prices have shot up. Uh, Civil servants are not being paid. And as Comfort said, I mean, the numbers that are in need of life-saving support are are, are desperate, more than half of the country. And I think the UN estimates now that that potentially a million children could die in the coming months of, of hunger if there isn't an about turn by by Western governments. Now, what would that involve? In essence, it would revo- involve releasing some of Afghanistan's frozen assets. So there's the money that's in the, the frozen assets that the US has. There's also 1.5 billion of World Bank money in a trust fund for Afghanistan that's also been frozen. The World Bank released 280 million of that, but that's a fraction of, of what's needed. They also need to be prepared to do more than just give humanitarian aid. I mean, in essence, what the country needs is support to keep its basic public goods alive. So that's the, the health service, the, the education system, livelihoods, food insecurity support. And, you know, for some of this, the, the unfortunate reality is that for some of this, the Western governments are, are going to have to work through Taliban ministries. Some is possible circumventing ministries, but some is not. And for now, that is Politically, there's too much opposition in Western capitals for, for, for governments to do that. Um, so, you know, I think it's the starvation of aid, uh, and the freezing of assets to a state that was entirely aid dependent that is what's brought on this terrible humanitarian situation in Afghanistan, the world's worst at the moment. Comfort, I think that uh, another conflict where there is a humanitarian crisis and certainly there's a lot of suffering that has happened due to human decisions is Ethiopia. Could you tell us what is happening in the northern Tigray region of Ethiopia and and are there opportunities for resolution in the new year? You know, the the fight in itself in Ethiopia has been appalling. You know, likely tens of thousands of people have died. We've also, as you rightly say, seen a humanitarian disaster, you know, thanks largely in part to the government's strangulation 
um, of the Tigray situation. The information coming out of the, the region, um, sometimes often, often difficult um, to assess, but clearly the human tragedy, um, the, the violence, um, the, the especially inflicted um, against um, civilians, indiscriminate attacks against um, innocent civilians. Um, all of this has um, been drawn out by the country's own National Human Rights Commission. So it's, it's not just crisis groups saying this. Although, you know, we've put Ethiopia on the list as a country of concern, of worry, we also do see the potential um, for a slight glimmer of hope. In the last few, few weeks, um, we've gone from a situation where we assess the situation to be pretty bleak um, to a situation today where there may be an opportunity um, to begin, especially um, after both sides um, made de-escalatory de moves in late December. So you remember um, there appeared to be a big push um, around about October or so, a march onto the capital of Addis by Tigray forces aided by the Oromo rebels. And then um, the federal troops and them themselves and their allied militias launched a counter-offensive in late November to retake several towns um, in Amhara and the Afar region. Um, and then just before the, the holidays, the TPFL um, leader himself announced that the Tigray forces had withdrawn northwards, calling for an inclusive dialogue and international action to protect the region. And then on the 22nd of December, the federal authorities said that they would halt advances into Tigray as they pressed ahead for national dialogue plans. So there are small steps towards peace. Um, these are a welcome shift away from outright armed violence. Um, we are proposing to international actors, ASTIS, especially the US, to work closely um, with the, the Africa Union Special Envoy for the Horn, um, a former um, president, um, um, Obasanjo of Nigeria, um, to think through how to get at formal hostilities um, as a first step um, towards more detailed um, ceasefire arrangements and, and political settlements. If the government is serious about a national dialogue, this is an important um, step towards reaching a political um, settlement, but that dialogue has to be fully inclusive in order to address the political differences underpinning the violence. Do we believe that the government, they actually want to take action on this? They're serious about a national dialogue? Or do they think that a war is likelier to get them where they want to go? What is very clear um, is that neither side is in, a, is in a position to claim outright victory. Right now, what we see is uh, what we're hearing is that there are some voices of moderation in either side of the camps. I guess the big question is whether... Um, Prime Minister Abiy himself, whether he has a sense um, that he can um, secure um, um, the, the battlefield's victories, whether he himself thinks that um, he can um, prevail politically, um, and also whether he can persuade also the Amhara elites and the Eritreans also to pull back um, their forces, because that's the other dynamic um, at, at stake. So the, the, the key challenge does remain um, is whether Prime Minister Abiy and, and also on the TPLF side, whether they're prepared to listen. All of this can flip very quickly um, overnight. It, it's why we, we are urging um, international actors to seize this opportunity. Thank you, Comfort, for a situation which, of course, has the world's attention at the moment, and that is 
the Russian buildup of troops on Ukraine's border. What is Russia's thinking here? Um, is it a bluff? Are they preparing to go to war? Uh, Ukraine is on our list this year. Richard, uh, can you help us understand a bit better what is happening? We say in the piece, and I think this is you know, certainly been borne out in everything that's happened since, that it would be a huge mistake to dismiss what Putin is doing as bluff. You know, I think there is a real chance of uh, some sort of Russian escalation in Ukraine over the coming weeks, unless there's a real turnabout in diplomacy. Now, the difficulty with that, it's going to be very difficult to accommodate what President Putin is asking for. I mean, he's asking for two things, essentially, one on Ukraine and one on broader European security. And on Ukraine, he, in essence clearly is unhappy with the status quo. He wants Ukraine to implement the Minsk agreements as Russia sees them, which basically involves giving a great deal more autonomy, self-rule to the separatist held areas, in essence, giving them a veto and thus Russia a veto in Ukrainian security and, and foreign policy. So I think that's you know, very difficult to see how Ukraine does that. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been you know, fairly accommodating in his early years when he came to office to Russia. It's very hard to imagine any president being able to advance that version of Minsk in Ukraine. And the second thing he wants is, uh, you know, renegotiation of European security, which basically entails guarantees that NATO is not going to expand uh, any further. So guarantees that Ukraine won't join, that Georgia won't join. Neither is likely to join anytime soon. But NATO powers don't want to rule out that at some day they might. And they don't want to rule out that, at, you know, that at some point, you know, the door is always open to, to states like Sweden and Finland that are not currently members. You know, you could argue why not be up front with Putin, that in reality, Ukraine and, and Georgia and uh, no time soon going to be part of, of NATO. But that's not enough. I mean, he wants, it seems that he wants very, very clear guarantees, written guarantees in treaty form. Difficult to see how the US and NATO uh, uh, acquiesce in that, uh, particularly uh, in the face of his military buildup and, and threats and, and aggression. We're recording this on Thursday. It'll be out tomorrow on Friday, which is the same day that US Secretary of State Tony Blinken meets with Sergei Lavrov, his Russian counterpart in Geneva. Let's see what comes out of those talks. But I think it's quite difficult to see how they walk this back. You know, Russia is already uh, involved militarily in Ukraine, backing the separatists that held held those areas of eastern Ukraine, Donbass. But what an escalation might mean, I think, is very unclear. The positioning of, you know, more than 100,000 troops, plus now the troops in Belarus, um, you know, gives Russia a lot of options. You know, whether it's just backing separatists to seize a bit more territory or pressure front lines, or whether it's doing something bigger, so seizing more territory, is unclear. I think what is clear is that Putin himself and many around him underestimate the depth of hostility in Ukraine to Russia, which is really a product of Putin's own policies. I mean, Putin's policies since 2014 have fueled Ukrainian nationalism and united Ukrainians in a way that they weren't before. Now, the Ukrainian military is no match for the Russian military, particularly if the Russians quickly use air power. Um, but there will be a lot of Ukrainian resistance. So any sort of occupation is going to be costly and difficult. But I think in Moscow, they underestimate that, which again makes the danger of an escalation all the more troubling. And if we now widen the lens to not only look at Russia and Ukraine, but at the geopolitical landscape more broadly, could you tell us a bit about how you see that in the year ahead, Richard? I don't think it's a secret that we're living in fraught geopolitical times, that major power tensions are on the rise, that 
you know, a number of regional orders are in flux, regional powers are, are, are competing. And some of those rivalries really overshadow a lot of the crises on the list. I would say first that there is perhaps some good news in that this sort of very destructive rivalry or two very destructive rivalries. So one that pitted Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates against Iran, and another sort of intra-Sunni struggle that, that saw the UAE and Egypt stand off against Turkey and, uh, and Qatar. You know, these two rivalries, which really fanned the flames of a lot of the Middle East's, North Africa's, Horn of Africa conflicts, both of those quietened to some degree over the past year. Uh, both Riyadh and Abu Dhabi sort of recalculated a little bit, particularly in relation to Iran. Uh, and they sort of felt that the confrontation with Iran, that Trump's maximum pressure approach had really sort of put them in the firing line uh, and that the rivalry with Iran was sort of getting dangerous. They worried about what an escalation might look like. They're still worried, I think, about what happens if the Iran nuclear deal collapses, which we haven't yet talked about, but is a real possibility. So there's still lots that they're concerned about, but they have sought to improve relations with Tehran. And there's been a series of meetings, four or five, I think, between top uh, Saudi officials and top Iranian officials. So that's certainly some good geopolitical news. Overall, though, it's a, it's a gloomy geopolitical picture. Tense relations between the US and China. We talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago. They haven't really improved under Biden. Competition now sort of seems baked into policy in both Beijing and Washington. Both see their interests, especially in the Indo-Pacific, as sort of on a collision course. China's belief that it needs to dominate the first island chain that stretches from the Kuril Islands down past Taiwan into the South China Sea. Washington's determination and you know that of its allies that the US remain the preponderant Asia-Pacific power. Now, the main flashpoint, Taiwan, uh, I think, despite increasingly alarming warnings, stepped up Chinese military activity. We don't see a Chinese assault on Taiwan as at all likely this year. But the US and Chinese militaries are operating in close proximity to one another at a time when there's little communication between them. And the risk of an incident between warships or planes, I think, is is real. Last time two planes collided in 2001, it took months of diplomacy to ease tensions. And it would be much, much harder uh, now, uh, given the, the, the sort of more fraught relations between Beijing and Washington. So uh, important that they look at conflict management mechanisms, talk more. And if both sides do believe they're locked in a strategic rivalry with one another, that they work out ways to compartmentalise differences as much as possible on some areas so that they can cooperate on others. We just talked about another big major power uh, rivalry, Russia and the West and the standoff over, over Ukraine. Uh, and then this other flashpoint that you mentioned, which is the Iran nuclear deal um, talks ongoing in Vienna. We spoke about it in depth last week. But there's a real possibility that they can't get back to the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, that they struggle to put in place a less for less deal that would at least stop Iran's rapidly accelerating nuclear program. And if the talks collapse and if they can't put in place anything that, to replace them, uh, Iran's nuclear program would sort of charge ahead uh, with the with the US uh, and its allies sort of thinking through whether they can live with that or whether they're going to take military action to try and stop it with all the dangers that that would entail in you know, an Iranian rush towards weaponization, potential escalation across the region as the sort of Iran lashes out through its proxies and forces uh, in in the region. So an escalation in the in the Middle East really uh, you know something that we're very worried about if the talks around the JCPOA collapse. 
You mentioned the changing role of the U.S. and the hopes that people had for Joe Biden when he was taking office. Um, in an address to the State Department last February, Joe Biden famously stated, America is back, diplomacy is back at the center of our foreign policy. Now we're a year into his presidency. There are midterm elections coming up in the U.S. this year. What are your thoughts about Biden's first year in office, Richard? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think if we sort of look at his first year track record on sort of crisis groups, bread and butter, on international peace and security and the geopolitics and the conflicts that we're talking about, I think you'd have to say it was a mixed record. There's been the positives. It's it's only, it's partly peace and security related, but obviously it's much bigger than that. The fact that he took the US back into the Paris Climate Accords. Um, so, you know, that's good news. There's been a, there's been generally a sort of big change of tone and, you know, a sort of sense of normalcy that's returned to the White House. He's gone some way to rebuild alliances and restore faith among some allies, particularly in Asia and Europe. I mean, there have been hiccups, obviously, the announcement of the AUKUS deal, this agreement between uh, Australia, the US and the UK, the announcement of which really understandably rubbed France up the wrong way. But generally, I think he's restored to some degree confidence in those alliances. I think it may sound may sound strange to say this when, you know, President Putin, Russian President Putin is massing forces on Ukrainian border and a, an invasion looks like real, a real possibility. But I don't think Biden's Russia policy has been too bad. Very difficult situation. I think generally the approach he's taken, you know, threatening uh, really sort of massive sanctions and, and uh, military buildup, making clear to Putin what the implications of a uh, of an incursion into Ukraine would be. I think generally that's been probably the right approach. It's probably too, a little bit too early to say, uh, you know, how that will be seen. And he's, I think his administration has helped nudge along the Saudi-Iran uh, rapprochement that, that, that I talked about. So I think there's some positives. I think then there's a category that you could say are sort of, is sort of meh or let's see. Um, and in that, I think sadly are the nuclear talks, and maybe that sounds a little bit unfair because clearly that was a terrible legacy that he inherited. Trump's pulling out of the nuclear talks was a disaster. You know, Biden inherited a, 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 an Iran that was much further along in its nuclear program, much more aggressive in the region, and had completely lost faith in the Iran nuclear deal because now the main sticking point is that Iran thinks that Biden can sign something, but the US will pull out again. So he inherited a real mess there. Uh, but I think it's too early to say on those. And then I think there's sort of a, a what you could call the non-strategic conflict management. So generally, US, the US's response to crises like that in Sudan or like that in Ethiopia, like that in Myanmar, where, you know, I, you know, I think they've overall been more engaged than the, than the Trump administration. I think maybe it's a little bit lackluster. You know, we don't find it perhaps as quick or as, as decisive as it might be. But I think we ought to be realistic that the US doesn't have the influence that it that it used to, that we are in a different world. Overall, it hasn't been um, a dazzling performance. On counterterrorism, and there's been a lot of revelations of, of civilian deaths over the past years, and there's been very little appetite to rethink the approach to counterterrorism or, or look in more depth at what happened uh, over recent years. So I think I put that in the medium category as well. And then I think you could say there's a, so there's a good, there's a man, then there's an ugly category as well. And clearly Afghanistan is, is in the ugly category. Um, you can, I think you can defend the decision to pull out. It would have been very difficult to, 
defeat the Taliban. I mean, I think you can argue that both ways. The poor planning, that's much harder to defend. I mean, clearly, a Taliban takeover that quickly might not have been the most likely scenario, but it was a scenario and the, the US should have been better planned for what happened. Um, particularly sort of a, a much less messy evacuation, a much better handover of Kabul. And now, you know, I think if, if, if that's hard to defend, what's happening now is, is really just impossible. As we talked about, Western policy at the moment shoulders a lot of the responsibility, um, together with the Taliban, but a lot of the responsibilities in Western capitals for this terrible humanitarian tragedy that's unfolding across, across Afghanistan. So that's one, I think, that you put in the ugly category. So I think overall, for President Biden's first term as it relates to sort of foreign affairs, international peace and security, I think, you know, it, it is a mixed bag. There's some that's good, there's some that's less see, and there's some that, you know, particularly Afghanistan, that's really not very appealing at all. But how's this to go to the other part of your question, which was the US's evolving role in the world? You know, there's still, as you say, a lot of uncertainty about that, which Biden hasn't been able to assuage. And, you know, frankly, I don't know if any US president could in large part because of where U.S. domestic politics is. People are unclear about how reliable the U.S. can be, whether policy is going to seesaw again in 2024 if uh, Trump or someone like him returns to the White House, whether the gridlock, the polarization, will hamstring foreign policy you know, to some degree. It already That's already happened with the Iran nuclear deal, but it's a much broader problem. So if Biden's record itself is a mixed bag, the bigger context is U.S. political dysfunction at home and what that means for its role abroad. Comfort, is there anything that is not on the list that is keeping you up at night? Anything you worry about? As we said at the beginning, you know, it's always a struggle to decide which country comes on the list. Two that struck me that I'm particularly concerned about um, today is Bosnia and Sudan. And particularly in Sudan, I mean, you know, within four days of the list coming out, um, Prime Minister Hamdok announced his resignation on the 2nd of January and you know, plunging the country into even greater political uncertainty. And, you know, his, his parting shot as he, you know, announced his resignation was to, you know, pronounce an ominous warning about looming fragmentation um, for the country. We, we saw a promising transition after the downfall, after 30 years of being in power of Omar al-Bashir and the arrival in August 2019 of an interim civilian-led government. But now that has veered off course um, following the 25th of October 2021 coup. You know, that's brought an abrupt end um, to that civilian-military partnership. And I think today the big question um, is, you know, how do we get um, Sudan's transition back on track? How do we reset that transition? Um, and, you know, today the, the military, you know, persists with its crackdown on a popular resistance. And then I think the other one, you know, Richard and I, in a sense, that we're children of the, you know, of the sort of the end of the Cold War, watching um, different conflicts um, emerge. And the, the big one then was the collapse of the former Yugoslavia, you know, and to see um, the, the now today Bosnia, the country faces you know, a twin crisis that could unravel the, the multi-ethnic state that was you know, carefully stitched together by the US and, and Europe over a, cent over a quarter of a century ago after the 1995 um, Dayton Peace Accords ended that brutal civil war. And I think it's still going to be a question and something for us to watch over the year as to how we can prevent um, this um, further division in 
um, of, of Bosnia into 2022. So obviously, both the nature of our work and the entire concept, as you've explained it, behind the TAN conference to watch means that this discussion has been a bit bleak. Um, but are there any positive news from 2021 or any positive trends we should look out for in 2022, Richard? You know, I think we're in a pretty gloomy uh, period of of of, uh, of history, uh, unfortunately. I think there's more to worry about than there is to, to to celebrate. But sure, I mean, I think there were a few trends last year which were which were positive. I mean, um, U.S. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that that Biden rejoined the the Paris climate deal. Now that's extremely important. You know, and some of the changes he's brought, some of the positives that I mentioned earlier of of, of what he's done. I mean, those are, those those are, those are good news. The Gulf uh, rapprochement that we talked about earlier, definitely good news. That the the sort of this bitter rivalry between the Saudis and Emiratis on the one hand and Iran on the other, that that's calmed a little bit. Undoubtedly good news. Again, let's see what happens now with the Iran nuclear deal. But certainly good news. Libya. Uh, the UN sort of managed, notwithstanding difficult Security Council politics, the UN managed to forge an agreement between Libya's warring parties. Now, again, it's under strain, but it is still holding. Honduras, unexpectedly, saw a change of power, a new president elected as president of Honduras. And, and you know, that election could have gone differently as well. Syria, I, I think it's hard to look for good news in Syria, given, again, it's still one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. But at least the levels of fighting are not what they were six or seven years ago. There's a sort of uneasy ceasefire. The regime didn't get, still didn't go in with the Iranians and the Russians into the northwest, into Idlib. It didn't go into the northeast, to Kurdish-held areas. So that's largely, you know, that's not necessarily positive, but it definitely could have been worse. Uh, there are certainly some bright spots, but I think overall it's a pretty gloomy picture. And for our listeners who, are, who, who want to see more hope, um, you can also find uh, a, a crisis group did a Twitter thread on 10 reasons to be hopeful for 2022. Many of those are, are on the list that, that Richard mentioned, but some are not. I was wondering if we could maybe just all reflect on um, any personal highlights for uh, a 2021 that was difficult for many. I can say that from my side, it was definitely welcoming my younger daughter, Thora, into the family. But comfort, anything that comes to mind? Um, I think the one that comes to mind for the entire um, crisis group family asked this and, and, and thanks for asking it, but also congratulations on your daughter's birth as well. But the one that certainly comes to mind for the entire crisis group um, family, but also for the people of, of Canada as well, is the release of our colleague, um, Michael Kovrig. Um, you know, that happened back in, you know, he was arrested, as you know, back in December 2018. To see that picture of him hugging his family for me, that's the most um, an endearing picture for the entire um, 2021. I, th I don't think there could be anything that tops that f for me throughout 2021. Um, to start the year or to end then the year with the announcement to find myself in the privileged position of running an organisation that I hold dearly to my heart is also um, the second one. And to do it with um, a wonderful team of people, including um, Richard and yourself, Astis, it's also very endearing. And I look forward um, both to the opportunity and, and the challenge that that brings as well. But um, thank you to all our, our listeners also. And I, and I hope to continue to appear on the, the podcast and have these conversations with, with Richard and the guests that we bring on, mainly um, crisis groups, analysts um, who can delve deeper into all these crises that we've been discussing 
of this particular podcast. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Austis Olafsdottir. And you pronounced your surname much better than I did at the beginning, Austis. So apologies for my garbled earlier pronunciation. Uh, and I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including our flagship piece on the 10 conflicts to watch in 2022 by checking out our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Don't worry, Richard, you did it much better than most. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but thank you very much to our producers, Sam Mednick and Kevin Murphy, and also to Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. If you have any suggestions, tips or feedback, please feel free to drop us a note. Uh, you can do that on podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And we very much hope that you'll all join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.